Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. Hey there, TCC. My name is Shane. I'm one of the pastors here. Open up your Bible, if you will, to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 22 today. Most important prayer in all of Scripture which is saying something. After all, we have many good options. We have the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus uses in answer to his disciples' request to teach them how to pray. And there's a lot there that we can learn from in that prayer and glean from that prayer. But the Lord's Prayer, in many ways, is a general prayer. It's a framework prayer. And that's helpful and instructional. But this is a personal prayer, a prayer in the particular, a prayer made in anguish. And so not only does it teach us, not only does it instruct us, but it also comforts us. And so with that in mind, let's turn to Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 39. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, "'Pray that you will not fall into temptation.' He withdrew about a stone throws beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, "'Father, if you are willing,' Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Does prayer work? That's a question lots of people ask. That's a question that people have even attempted to study empirically. I saw a Facebook acquaintance of mine posted sneeringly about a study done on prayer. It's kind of an old study, and it involved 1,800 patients who were undergoing heart bypass surgery. The patients were divided into three groups. The first group was told that they were being prayed for and were prayed for. The second group was told that it's possible that they were being prayed for and were prayed for. And the third group was told that it's possible that they were being prayed for but were not prayed for. The result was that those patients who knew that they were definitely being prayed for developed more complications after surgery. That is, the first group did worse than the other groups. And many people will look at studies like that and say, ha, see, prayer doesn't work. Now, frankly, I I find these studies to be rather silly, and I find their analysis to be even worse. Right off the bat, there's some glaring issues. And number one, who are they praying to? That seems like an important detail that none of these studies even bother to mention. We have examples in Scripture of prayers offered to false gods that don't have the intended effect. First Kings, Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us, let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves, and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, What you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. 
No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. A lot of pleading, a lot of fervent praying going on, but it doesn't make a difference. Who you pray to matters quite a bit. And how we pray matters. The conditions of our hearts matter. We see that in Scripture, too. James speaks to this. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And he says in chapter 1, verse 6, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. So we see in Scripture that who we pray to matters and how we pray, the conditions of our heart, the reasons behind our prayers matter, which none of these studies on prayer ever take into account. But more than that, there's a greater issue, which is, in order to say whether or not something works, you have to know what its function is. You have to know what it's meant to do. You could take anything. Those coffee pots out there, oh, they don't work. They don't make toast. Every Sunday I go out there, no toast. I push the lever, no toast. We need new coffee pots. These ones don't work. They don't make toast. No, the coffee pots work fine. It's your brain that's broken. Because the function of a coffee pot is not to make toast. Now, I know that's all silly, but there are non-Christians and even a few professing Christians that have that level of misunderstanding when it comes to prayer. The fundamental problem of all these studies on prayer is that they completely misunderstand the function of prayer. They're trying to prove something or disprove something that the Bible doesn't claim. In the most simplistic terms, prayer is our means of talking to God. It's a relational enterprise. That's its function. And there are offshoots of that. There are corollaries with that. Prayer is an exercise of faith. Prayer is a means by which we grow and are transformed by the Spirit. Prayer is a means by which we come into alignment with God's will. But those are things that grow out of and from a relationship with God. And we see that more clearly when we look at other forms of prayer. Prayers of petition are only one form. Our desires, our requests, our petitions that we make to God is only one subject that we talk to God about, right? Nobody ever questions whether or not a prayer of gratitude works. Oh, thank you, Lord, right? Thank you, God. Did it work? But plenty of people have fallen into the belief that God is a genie and prayers are wish-casting. When you hear Elijah mocking the prophets of Baal, you know, shout louder, maybe God is sleeping. You know, that's actually a concept. I grew up in Japan and have seen many of these Shinto shrines where there's a rope attached to a bell and they go up and you ring the bell to wake the gods. That's what it's for. Then you toss in a few cheap coins, clap your hands and make your petition, right? Help me pass my exams, right? Good fortune, good luck, And that may seem foreign to us, but it's really no different than what we see in places like with the prosperity gospel. God will give you what you want. He'll bless you. He'll heal you. Your prayers aren't being answered because you're doubting. 
Your prayers aren't being answered because you don't have enough faith. You need to be more fervent. Cut yourself. Display your devotion. Ring the bell harder. And then your wish will be granted. Now, again, there is something to what James is saying. Our hearts do matter in prayer. Our motives do matter. And the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. But the Christian God is not a genie. He's not a small God that we can manipulate. He's not a false God that we need to wake up and bend to our will by our wish casting. Here's some other prayers that we have in Scripture. Here's David. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. But if we know our Bibles, we know that the child dies. David pleads with God, petitions God to spare the child, and God says, no. We see the Apostle Paul. I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Three times Paul pleads with the Lord and God says, no, that's not how this is going to go. Now, maybe you could say, well, you know, Paul and David, they weren't righteous enough or, or those guys didn't have enough faith. Maybe you could say that. They were sinful. They were flawed men. But you definitely can't say that of Jesus. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is not lacking in righteousness. Jesus is not lacking in faith. Jesus is not double-minded or wrongly motivated. And he says this, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. That is a request. That is a petition. Jesus, in his anguish, is asking God the Father for something. And God the Father says, no. The cup is not taken away from him. And that is a comfort to us. That is a comfort to us. It is an unassailable, potent refutation of the prosperity gospel and a dagger against the vapid and small genie gods that we might conjure. And that is a comfort because we all, at one point or another, will pray to God, imploring him in our anguish, and we will be told, no. No, it's not going to work that way. No, it's not going to go that way. No. And in those moments, our anguish and our sorrow does not need to be compounded with thoughts of, well, if only I had more faith. How cruel of a thought is that? I could have convinced God. I could have manipulated God. I could have bent him to my will if only I were more righteous. If only I prayed more fervently. If only I rang the bell harder. And God that is completely subservient to our will is no God at all. And the only comfort for our sorrow, the only rest from our anguish is found in the sovereign will of God. That's what Jesus points us to, right? He says, yet not my will, but yours be done. He trusts in God the Father, trusting in his goodness, trusting in his faithfulness, trusting in his righteousness, and so rests in the sovereign will of the Father because God knows what he's doing. And aren't we so grateful that God the Father said no? We, we are saved because God said no. 
We have something to celebrate come Easter because God said no to this petition. We see in this prayer that God's sovereign will is right and good, even when it's hard and painful. Jesus is in anguish. The Bible doesn't shy away from that. The Bible doesn't mince words. Verse 44, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, some people take this line literally, where there's an actual medical condition. It's rare, but it's real. It's called hematidrosis, and they think it's caused by severe stress, where tiny blood vessels in the skin break open, and the blood inside them gets squeezed out through sweat glands. It's possible. Of course, it's also possible that Luke is just using a simile. Not that it was literal blood in the sweat, but that it was like blood in the way that it was pouring out of him profusely. But either way you want to look at it, the point is to demonstrate the anguish of Jesus in this moment. In Matthew, Jesus is recorded as saying these words, Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now really think about that. I know for many of us as Christians, this is all so familiar that it doesn't penetrate and we don't ponder anew. But think about this. Think about the audacity of this prayer. This was the plan. Since before the world began, this was the plan. The entire reason, the entire reason that God comes down and takes on flesh, becomes incarnate, becomes the God-man is for this very purpose. Jesus doesn't come to be a good moral teacher, though he teaches us a lot of things. Jesus doesn't come to reign as a king, though he will one day. No, Jesus comes here in this time to save us from our sins by dying on a cross in our stead. That was what he came to do from the very beginning. Since before he was born, the angel said this about him to his earthly father, Joseph. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus comes to do by dying on the cross, forgiving our sins, redeeming us if we have faith in him. That's his mission. That's the reason that he came. And yet here, in his full humanity, he doesn't want to do it. He's in anguish. He doesn't want to suffer like this. And who could blame him? He doesn't deserve it. And he asked the Father, is there any other way? And God the Father says, no. If nothing else, this this heart-wrenching prayer demonstrates to us that Jesus is the only way. There is no other way by which we can be saved. There are not multiple paths to heaven or different options that work just as well. Jesus is the only way. He tells us this in John. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This prayer here disabuses us of the notion that there are multiple paths or that we can work it out on our own apart from Jesus. No, Jesus, in his anguish, implores God the Father, is it possible that this cup can pass from me? And the answer is no. There's no other way. And Jesus submits himself, as we ought to in our prayers, in our anguish, submits himself to the sovereign will of the Father. He doesn't stop praying going, well, that didn't work. No, it says he prayed more earnestly. And he tells his disciples to keep praying. Verse 40, 
On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And then again, verse 46, why are you sleeping? He asked them, get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Now notice though, it doesn't take away the suffering. God is good. God is just. God is faithful. God is all-powerful and all-knowing. And so we can trust him in his sovereign will. And we pray, relating with him, praising him, thanking him, casting our cares upon him. By doing so, we know him better, and so we trust him more. But that doesn't make the painful things not painful. It doesn't make the sorrowful things not sorrowful. It doesn't make the hard things that we go through not hard. We live in a fallen world, in a sinful world, in a world not yet fully redeemed. And we remind ourselves of that during this Lenten season. We say that things are not as they should be. We have hatred and evil and lawlessness, abuse, murder, war, sickness, and most of all, death. The Bible says these words to us. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. That's the hope that we have. That's the comfort that we have. That's why we celebrate come Easter. That's why we don't grieve like those who have no hope. But we do grieve. Christianity is not rose-colored glasses. It's not wish-casting. It's not turning a frowny face upside down. Suffering and pain are not a matter of mere perspective, but are true evils birthed in the consequence of sin, which even a perfect man did not wish to endure. But Jesus does endure it, because the sovereign will of God is good. Even in the suffering, even in the pain, even in the anguish and the dark nights of our soul, even when we're praying and pleading with God and the answer we get back is no. That's a comfort we have in this prayer. Jesus is open in his prayer and we too can be open and honest before God. Jesus has torment in his soul and sadness in his heart, but ultimately victory in his obedience. And those of us who are in Christ, who have become his sons and daughters, we are promised the same thing. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. It declares in 2 Timothy, here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. God is good. God is just. God is faithful. God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and so we can trust in the sovereign will of God even when enduring suffering. That's what the prayer shows us. But also this comfort, verse 43, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. He didn't take away the anguish, didn't cease the suffering, but in our darkest moments, God promises to be there. Jesus declares to his followers, I am with you always to the end of the age. God promises to his people that he will never leave them nor forsake them. I think this is the most important prayer in scripture. It's a refutation of a gospel of prosperity. 
It's a dagger against a vapid, small God that has no power to comfort. It's a bold acknowledgement that our world is fallen. It's a profound statement that Jesus is the only way. And it shows us just how much God loved us, that he would send his son to this suffering and anguish. We see openness in Jesus' prayer, torment in his soul, anguish in his heart, but victory in his obedience. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.